Hello and welcome to the Tyler Balkum Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Susan Smith, Senior Lecturer in the Cognitive Science Department at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. At RPI, Susan teaches a variety of courses, including bioethics, philosophy of race, and philosophy of biology and sex. Her research has largely consisted in the intersection between healthcare and race, and therefore she has a plethora of knowledge of the racial inequity in the United States' healthcare system. Now, I met Susan as a student in her philosophy of race class, and though I think the class is a little too consistent with progressive politics, I found myself infinitely more comfortable talking about race afterward. Susan's qualities as a teacher, such as her inclination towards empathy, her intelligence, and her passion for social justice are on full display in this episode. And if you're interested in why sickle cell anemia occurs, how whistling Vivaldi can shift people's perception of you, why the DEI industry doesn't work, what to do instead of these trainings, and what the hell critical race theory actually is, I encourage you to listen to the remainder of this episode. This episode is not brought to you by any sponsors. To any brands out there looking to promote their content, products, or services, please reach out to me and I'll make an ad for you for free and put it in the intro to my show. If you think that our audiences overlap in any capacity, i.e. an audience interested in philosophy, politics, self-improvement, or health and fitness, then my show is right for you. If interested, you can reach me at the email listed in the episode description. I want to start reading a quote before episodes because there are things that people of the past have said that strike us in so powerful a way that we cannot ignore the content of the message. The quote I want to give today is something I encountered in the readings of William Du Bois in Susan's class. I may not be the person to read it, and it may feel awkward hearing it, but I think it should be shared with the world. Here it is. For the development of Japanese genius, Japanese literature and art, Japanese spirit, only Japanese, bounded by one vast ideal, can work out in its fullness the wonderful message which Japan has for the nations of Earth. For the development of Negro genius, of Negro literature and art, of Negro spirit, only Negroes bound and welded together, Negroes inspired by one vast ideal, can work out in its fullness that great message we have for humanity. We cannot reverse history. If amongst the gaily colored banners that deck the broad ramparts of civilization is hung one uncompromising black, then it must be placed there by black hands, fashioned by black heads, and hallowed by the travail of 200 million black hearts beating in one glad song of jubilee. Now, without further ado, Dr. Susan Smith. Why isn't it the case that race is biological? Why isn't it the case that race is biological? So understanding race as biological or not um, is an interesting, this is an interesting question and I'm, I'm pausing already because I wanna make sure I, I speak properly about this. So let me start by saying there's no gene for race. And this might seem like an elementary point to you, but it, it's really not when you um, think about the general population. Race is widely considered biological, whether people will say it explicitly or whether it's an internalized type of bias, that we have such a history of ra- what's called race science Uh, that it's become embedded in the way we think about race. So for most of us, it takes an explicit, like, effort to 
like start to question that bias or start to acknowledge it and then question it. So um, why isn't it the case? Well, first of all, there's no gene for race. So what do we mean by biological race, right? Like, so it is the case that certain genes exist in higher frequencies in certain populations, and those correlate to like the geography of our ancestors, but they don't correlate to the racial groupings we've created in the United States. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So most people are going to say, but hey, you know, you inherit the skin color of your parents, you inherit other genes. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't that count as a biological account? So it is like, let's, let's talk about skin color, because that is probably the way most of us, you know, identify someone's race, right? And skin color is heritable. But we group, um, the way that we group like our census categories, which I think we might talk about, um, the way that we uh, form those groupings don't actually correspond to um, particular types of skin colors. So when we group people according to, you know, um, uh, let's say uh, black Americans, like all of those skin colors are not the same. And what we've connected to skin color in terms of our social ideas about race, um, that there's not a correlation that exists there. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's no clear, like, we say, we can identify black as a skin color, perhaps, but it's like, there are such subtle variations in each of them. And if you wanted an objective color, you couldn't get one. Yeah, there's not a particular type. Like if you look at somewhere like Cuba or Brazil, the way that they uh, categorize skin color and racial groupings is very different than the way we do. So our grouping that we've chosen to call black would be like multiple different racial groupings in other countries. So you can see how that that social construction begins to to happen. Like the that we've chosen skin color as a way to group people racially is a social phenomenon. So um, our, our height, our foot size, our eye color, all of those things are heritable characteristics, heritable phenotypes, but we haven't chosen those things as important for racial groupings. Right. So let's maybe talk about the history then. Mm -hmm. Why is it that skin color has been so important to us? Well, let me uh, let me pull the teacher out of uh, <laughs> out here. Why do you think it's why do you think we've made it so important? Oh goodness. Why not foot size? I'll make it easier for yeah. you. Yeah. So, my answer would probably be something like we needed a means by which to justify social divisions born of slavery, basically. So, why skin color? Why didn't we take all the size eight feet people and do that? Well, where were our slaves coming from? Our slaves had a pretty uniform skin color. And so there was a very obvious class of people at the bottom. And then I suppose it was convenient to keep them at the bottom. Well, I don't even I don't I I don't even want to say the bottom, like people that lived in a different way than colonists, for example, people that didn't have um, weapons uh, like if I think about, I've been doing a lot of research into Indigenous Canadian history recently, 
and the way that Indigenous populations have been treated in, in Canada. And why were they oppressed? Why were they, you know, made to live on these very remote, small areas of land? And that's because they lost they lost the battle, right? They didn't have the same kinds of weapons that um, Anglo-Saxon colonists had. And it's just, um, so I'm, I'm just like, I want to say that this idea of the bottom, right, didn't happen until colonization started, right? Yeah. Right? When I say bottom, I mean like, once they have arrived, they are at the bottom of the social right. hierarchy. They're because, oppressed. Yeah, they're yeah. slaves. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, what is what is your account then? Is, My account you, of race, or, or why why have we chosen to focus oh, on it so much? It's because it's obvious, because it's easy, right? And we seem to want. It seems to be human nature to want to categorize things, and then once we start to categorize them, we we maybe we start to create hierarchies. I mean, different typically means better or worse, not, oh, just, it, it's kind of, if you ask your parents, I don't know if you have a sibling, mm. no, but if you have, if you have, you know, two siblings and you ask a parent, you know, do you love us the same, <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah, you're different, but I love you the same. And <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to think about that difference as like equal in yeah. a sense, right? So I think there's that piece. But yeah, colonization, definitely, um, there had to be a reason why um, we could use other human beings as our tools, as our slaves. And skin color was a really obvious difference between, uh, between you know, colonizers and indigenous populations. And so that that was used to justify the oppression of those groups and so skin color then became code for all kinds of other things that um weren't necessarily different right like it, things like intelligence which we can't even quantify or define but somehow it, there was this racial science quest to show that like there was a racial hierarchy in in IQ and that was always debunked like like it was debunked throughout the you know 18 late 1800s through the 20th century and then you know late in the 20th century I'm an undergraduate student and there's a professor you know two hours down the road at another university who brings it all back again like like the idea that published a paper on racial hierarchies and IQs. And it was really bad science. It was very easy to debunk, but it just keeps happening that we are, you know, we attach these deeper meanings to skin color, skin color differences. And so this idea of race as biological is not only it's not only false at this point in time from a scientific view, um, it's dangerous because of the way it's been used to oppress people and, you know, say, I mean, James Watson just a few years ago, right, it was still saying that black Americans didn't have the same academic capabilities as white, white Americans. Like, 
it just keeps it's pervasive in our society. And we really need to do a deep dive into why people still think this when the science exists out there to say this is absolutely not true. Yeah. So one thing I'm wondering is race still has significance. It's we've talked about this in your class. We can't just do away with it necessarily. Right. right. So let's maybe first talk about it as having some association with culture. Do you think there's well, what is that mapping like? Is it at all viable to do that sort of thing? Like, you know, obviously not exactly because, you know, there are some people who have a white skin color, but they're born in an exclusively black household and they'll say, I'm black. Right. And it's like, okay, does that mean it's cultural? But then like, you're also white. What are your thoughts on culture as a corollary to race? So if you look at white Americans, for example, the cultural diversity within that racial group is massive, right? If your ancestors happen to be from Italy or Germany or France, right? I mean, your cultural ideas and values might be very different. And it's funny, you know, as a white person, I didn't realize how many of the culture, like little cultural pieces of like having a, a French Canadian background, how that uh, impacted the way I understood culture and cultural practices, like until pretty recently, where I was in a very French Canadian setting. And I'm like, oh, that's why we always did this. So things that um, white Americans take as, oh, well, this is like part of my, you know, just being a white American, they like a lot of that has roots in their European ancestry, wherever that happens to come from. So if you just look at whiteness, I mean, the cultural diversity within that group is is huge. And it's the same for other racial groups. My gosh, if we think about, if we're going to use the census categories today, just as a like basis for racial groupings, um, if you look at the category of Asian Pacific Islander, the cultural diversity within that group is probably more... Um, complicated than any other racial group uh, because there are about 127 to be like just as a round number, right? Um, 127 Jeez. different like ancestral lineages that 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 comprise that group, right? So you have uh, Japanese traditions, you have I don't know how many different you know Chinese cultures exist, and even um, I'm thinking of you know, my Kazakh friend who is classified as Asian and has even like very, very different um, cultural ideas than, you know, someone we would classify as Chinese. So I don't see the, the correlation there. My, I think my favorite definition of race uh, is, is Jorge Gracias, who I know you're smiling because like, <laughs> He's my hero. Yeah. Um, but his idea combines like the fact that we classify people by skin color, by heritable traits, and that also is social in the sense that we've chosen particular traits to classify people by. Okay. So for your example of a white person being adopted by a black family and growing up in in that like cult, whatever that culture is right for that black family well 
Jorge would say, Gracia would say, that person actually is not black because our notions of race are connected to these phenotypic features, right? Culturally, they might identify with whatever that particular culture is they're, they're raised in, but racially, they're not black because clearly, you know, their skin would not be, they would be identified as white. Okay, so your own identity, your conception of yourself doesn't matter in this context. It's you are X because people think you are X. Right. So um, if we have chosen socially certain features about people that matter in their racial identification, so things like skin color, hair type, nose shape, eye shape, you know, things like that, right? And uh, I can... I know this is a podcast, so people can't see me, but I'm white. <laughs> my racial identity is white. Both of my parents are white. Um, so if I walked around and said, I'm black, people would think I didn't know what I was talking about, right? right. So race is a social construction. So if I don't, uh, like, it doesn't make sense in terms of our social understanding of race to for me to say that I'm black when I clearly don't have any of those characteristics that we've chosen to identify um, with racial classifications. Okay. I don't know if you're comfortable going down this track, but I've been doing a thesis with another professor here, John Milanese, on gender. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think of gender similarly and that it's a social construct but we can't do the same thing, it seems, where we're like, you are a woman because you are seen as a woman. There seems to be something different there. Uh -huh. Do you have any thoughts on why there's a difference? Why Why is someone black because they're seen as black, but why is someone not a woman because they're seen as a woman? So, um, so in that case, so our discussion of race and culture... Um, I think you're drawing the analogy to sex and gender. Is that fair or no? Um, not exactly. So if I, I have a uterus and a vagina, right, okay. and a cervix. And so, like, I, and I identify, like, g my gender, the gender I identify with is as a woman. Um, gender is a fluid, I, I think it's a fluid thing that in terms of my gender, I'm like, not like, if we have a, a scale from like, super masculine to super feminine, right? I'm not super feminine, but I still identify as, as, as uh, a woman, right? Okay. And my biology matches my gender identification. Right. Right. So it could be the case that my biology didn't match my gender. Right. right, right. So, um, like, if I sat here and identified as a man, um, that would be my gender identification, but it mm. wouldn't be my sex identification. Okay. So, I kind of see it's like, well, if race has no biological basis, then we don't have this thing going on with sex and gender. There's not sort of an emergence here with which you do or do not associate. Race is just kind of like, oh. It's out here, but it's not connected to anything right. at rock bottom. Right. I think the way we talk about gender is probably more akin to talking about race than 
than race is to sex, for right, sure. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the census categories, so a thought that occurred to me, we've got 127 different, roughly, uh, I think the word you used was... Asian Asian Pacific Islander. Right, yeah. right. Um, is there any use in grouping them merely because they all suffer from, let's say, similar stereotypes or something like that? Um, so I think they're, they're, I think if I'm understanding this question, or maybe I'm going to manipulate it to answer what I want to <laughs> answer, um, are you saying, like, do these racial categories do anything for us? Yeah, basically. That, so personally, I think, well, personally, and from an academic standpoint, especially as a bioethicist, I think they are important. Uh, some philosophers have argued that we should just get rid of race, right? That we should institute more of a colorblind, you know, kind of society. And maybe there's a place for that in the future. But right now, there's so much inequity based on race in our society that I think it's important to keep those categories so that we can recognize bias, recognize racial disparities where they exist. So let me give you an example of this uh, in medicine. And uh, so I'll give you an example of why it works and why it doesn't. So we know right now that black women are dying at, I think it's now triple the rate of white women, um, in terms of maternal mortality. Yeah, I've seen this. Okay, maternal mortality rates. So it's very important to know that that's the case so that we can figure out what's going on there, right? Uh, if you look at, uh, what was I looking at just recently? Sterilization rates, like forcible sterilizations. Mm, okay. <laughs> like if you stratify that by race, like what happened in Canada, indigenous women were being sterilized at three times the rate of, of white women. And the reason for the, this isn't happening anymore, but the reason for the sterilizations was um, that if people were seen, this is part of the eugenics movement, if people were seen as possibly unfit parents, um, based on like cognitive, or physical um, differences, that it was okay to sterilize them because they wouldn't be able to take care of their children. And so this was widely accepted for a while, right? But then the justification started to bleed into other things, right? So now um, indigenous women were seen as less than and sterilized at something like three times the rate of white women. So knowing that racial disparity helped us to understand, wait a minute, um, what's going on here and understand that we were basing like social, like these racial categories were actually being used to say, oh, you shouldn't have children because of your race, not because of your ability to take care of someone, right? Yeah. Um, so the like, and if you go like look in the literature in medicine, it, it's all over the place, the racial disparities, right? But our racial categories are so rough. Um, and I, I don't have the exact numbers here, but say um, hypertension in Asian populations is typically higher. But if you look in at the, the uh, different types of 
groups within that Asian population. So if I look at uh, indigenous Hawaiian populations versus um, Japanese populations versus people from Sri Lanka or whatever, right? The rates of hypertension are widely different. So they all come out as, oh, Asian, Asian Americans mm. have higher hypertension rates. But really, there are certain groups within that population that have widely, like wildly, sorry, higher hypertension rates. And that's getting buried in a sense yeah. because of the racial groupings. So the way we've done it is rough uh, and it doesn't always do well because like, like I'm saying with the hypertension, but in terms of someone experiencing like high blood pressure because of the racial discrimination they face, you can see how the groupings might work in terms of medicine, right? Yeah. But now we have an argument for okay, way go. more categories, okay. right? Mm -hmm. uh, like potentially 127. Is there any reason not to do that? Like why not just get as nuanced as possible? So I think that this gets at what med uh, what people in medicine are talking about in, in, in terms of personalized medicine. So right now, the way we do medicine, the way we uh, diagnose people, the way we treat people is we, we do it through induction, right? Uh, we figure out, you know, what's working for most people. And that's the first thing you try. And, and my easy example of this is like for an ear infection, okay? This isn't related to race at all. Okay. But um, a child comes into a doctor's office with an ear infection, and maybe there's, there are a whole bunch of ear infections in children going around. And the physician says, oh, amoxicillin has been working. So let's try that first. And then a week later, the parent comes back and says, well, this didn't work. Okay, for the people that, that didn't work in, we've been trying Zithromax. And so you send them home and you keep narrowing it down till something works. But we're using the process of induction. We don't really know why the amoxicillin was working for most people. We just know that it was, right? So ideally, we get to the point where we can know what kind of bacterial infection is going on and then know exactly what, what, what um, antibiotic to use, right? <laughs> wow. I was looking for a word cue there. Um, yeah. So I think it's the same thing. If we look at um, some of the hypertension drugs that have been developed and approved by the FDA, um, that are race-based drugs. We don't know why the drugs seem to work better in people of particular races, and they certainly don't work for all people of particular races. There's just a correlation going on. D does that make sense? Yeah, it's just a bit weird. Like, why would an, a hypertension medicine for that is marketed to Asian-Americans work better for all Asian Americans if they're all that diverse. So it doesn't work better for all Asian Americans. Right, right, right. But is it like, it's working for the Japanese, most of them, but it's not working for the Sri Lankans. Or is it just like, right. it works for some people and doesn't work so for others? So it's kind of like, um, I don't know the, I don't know the, 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 exact answer for that right i don't be and nobody does why yeah. does this drug work better because <laughs> we don't know the mechanisms right uh but we do know that gene frequencies differ between populations right so that could be an that 
that's probably mm. the answer that there's some genetic reason for this. But that genetic reason, like, so say it's a gene XYZ, right? Okay. And that gene is more frequent in a certain population than that drug, if, if that's the only reason that that drug works, um, then it's going to work best in that population. <clears throat> but it's also going to work in some other populations too, just maybe at a lower success rate. Right. So it doesn't yeah. work for, let's say, you know, um, Hawaiian descended American, well, Hawaiian, indigenous Hawaiian populations. Maybe there's a higher frequency of a particular gene. So if that, that medication works because of that gene, then you're going to see a higher efficacy rate in that population. Yeah. But that gene's going to occur in other populations as well at different frequencies. So it's going to have different success rates in different, ra in different groupings. But the groupings don't necessarily correlate to race. They might correlate to ancestral lineage. So if we think of something, maybe this, the, the easiest example of this is sickle cell anemia and the way that that occurs in our populations, right? Yep. So I know I've talked to you about this a million times, but just for the sake of, you know, our discussion, I think it's, think it's important, yeah, right? Very, very. So uh, sickle cell anemia in the United States was for decades thought to be a, a black disease, right? And sickle cell anemia is a monogenic recessive disease. So you need two recessive copies of the sickle gene if you have those, then you will have sickle cell disease, right? Well, there's a reason why that gene uh, wasn't, you know, it didn't evolve out of existence, right? Because um, if you have one copy of that gene, you have more of a resistance to malaria, okay? So because malaria needs like big, fat, round, oxygenated red blood cells to infect and be carried around the body, um, people with sickle cell, they're not going to get malaria because they don't have enough big fat red blood cells, right? Their blood cells are sickled and they're not good for malarial parasites. Um, so, but if you have sickle cell, then before there were treatments for it, you would die very young before you even reproduce. So why did this gene hang around, right? if it was killing people. Well, if you had one copy of the gene, then malaria, either you didn't get it or you got it very mildly because it didn't have the big round, enough of the big round red oxygenated blood cells, right? So those people didn't die from sickle cell and they didn't die from malaria. So anyone who's descended from ancestral populations that lived in parts of the world where malaria was prevalent have a higher probability of having sickle cell anemia or being a carrier having sickle cell trait, right? So if you look at the map, a map of the world where malaria was most prevalent and is still most prevalent, right? You see that certain parts of Africa definitely, you know, had malaria, but also parts of the Mediterranean and parts of the Middle East and so those populations, like people descended from those populations, have a higher probability of having sickle cell anemia and sickle cell trait. Right. So not all of them, but more of them than, say, someone whose uh, family descended from, uh, 
you know, northern Russia, yep. right? So you can think about, you know, hypertension in the same way. But even, hypertension is even different because there could be cultural effects, you know, like diet, um, cultural practices. Um, if you, we think about things like hypertension and high blood pressure, they're absolutely affected by um, what we eat, uh, how we experience the world. Uh, if you live in poverty, you know, you're, you're more likely to have high blood pressure and hypertension. So it's way more complicated than just a, just a gene. I, th- I don't know if I'm answering, the, if I've answered the question or... I don't remember the question. <laughs> 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 no, but there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. I've had thoughts racing through my mind. So when it comes to hypertension, you just mentioned that it correlates with poverty because just more stressful conditions. Mm-hmm. And that brings to mind the association of poverty with race to some extent. So we see these problems like three times the mortality rate in black mothers. And we see perhaps higher rates of hypertension. How much of that is related to class, do you think? Uh, The maternal mortality rates are not related to class. Okay. So they've stratified that data and even mother, like, uh, you know, High-level earning moms uh, are experiencing the same rates of maternal mortality. Okay. So what that tells me is it it's some kind of bias in the system. It's I mean we see this with women in general that women are um, their pain isn't taken as seriously. We see that a lot with there are tons of pain studies with respect to black patients that they're being undertreated for pain. There's one study that showed, um, I think they looked at like charts of, I, I want to say a million, but it seems outrageous to say that number, but they looked at pediatric appendicitis cases. So they did a retrospective study and stratified the data by race and looked at the prescription of pain medication and black pediatric patients for ap- appendicitis receive no or little pain medication um, compared to their white counterparts. Like the the statistics were overwhelming that they received like either no or little pain medication mm. while their white counterparts received, you know, adequate pain medication. It, I mean, I can and I don't want to believe that a doctor actually has a hard time recognizing that. But... I feel like if the doctor were the same race as the patient, if it were a black doctor, you probably wouldn't have a similar problem. So so could that be a solution? Is that well, a- perhaps, right? Like we're, there are movements for diversity in pretty much every place, but I do wonder how much of the problem is you have a white doctor who has some kind of bias and cannot relate to the individual in some way. And then if that's the problem, then it's like, what do you do to the doctor? Do you just inundate them with DEI training and, you know, anti-implicit bias procedures? So the appendicitis uh, study for me was like, okay, um, we know this is happening. Why isn't there just a, 
if a child comes in with appendicitis, this is how much pain yeah. medication they should get. Why Why do we even have to think about it, right? There should just be a, a standard operating procedure. Like, this is the standard of care for pain management in pediatric children with appendicitis. So there's that solution. Um, but you also brought up, you know, white doctor, black doctor. Uh, there's a book that I read uh, by Damon Tweedy. It's called Black Man in a White Coat. And Damon Tweedy is a black man. He's a doctor. And he chronicles his experience as a student, as a medical student, as a resident, and as a practicing doctor, and then finally as a patient. And what he discovers about himself as a doctor is that he's he's practicing with the same bias as his white counterparts, that he sees it initially, um, but then he catches himself doing it. And then as a patient, he finds himself on the receiving end of it too, even as an educated physician um, when it comes to things like pain management and how he's treated in the hospital. So um, do I think most doctors like are intentionally under treating pain in black patients? No, um, but I think there's an implicit bias going on there. And um, my understanding of some of the cognitive science research on bias training is that it, it really doesn't work. Yeah. Um, that when we make people go through bias training, that it ends up reinforcing biases that they already have. Yeah. And the bias training that I've been exposed to, um, it's been pretty inadequate I, from, from my, in my opinion, right? Yeah, in, my, yeah. in my personal experience. So the fact that, you know, we all grow up in this very biased world like, let me give you an example of this. My my daughter growing up, um, you know, we're a hockey family, right? Yeah. And, you know, she started skating when she was like two years old and loved it, right? And and we always went to hockey games. She saw me play hockey, right? <laughs> and we were at a hockey game, a, col a men's college game once. And I said to her, are you going to be a hockey player one day, Ellie? And she's like, no. And I said, why not? Like, you love playing hockey. She's like, mom, only boys play hockey. Mm. And I was like, wow, I was mortally wounded by this. Like, <laughs> and so, you know, despite my best efforts, right, that's what she saw in the world. Well, it's weird. You're, she knew that you played hockey. Right. And she still thought that. Yeah. Mm. It's crazy. I mean, I think about... Um, I'm going to give you lots of media references here, but like like the Damon Tweedy book is, it's such a good, you know, I think narrative is super important. If we really want to learn about things like bias, um, we have to be intentional about it. And hearing stories, like hearing people's narratives and first person accounts, I think is a very effective way to um, at least make people aware of what this looks like. Um, from different perspectives, right? So I think about Serena Williams' um, documentary, Being Serena. It's not, it's, you know, like six years old now. Uh, and she's uh, chronicles, you know, becoming pregnant and playing tennis and then being a mom and trying to play tennis, right? And the all those challenges. Uh, but one of the one of the episodes is the birth of her first child. And Serena Williams, I mean, 
if you say that name and everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? And I would say she's one of the most powerful women in the United States, if not the world, right? Powerful in terms of um, she's got a platform that she uses and speaks from. Powerful in the sense that, she, like, from a financial perspective, she's very well off, right? She's a well-educated woman, Um I don't know. She's I, I aspire to women like that, that, you know, use their their platform and use their place in the community to help other people. And I feel like she has that personality. Like if Serena says, you know, do this, you do it. Right. So and maybe I'm like, you know, there's a little hero <laughs> worship going on here. But regardless, <laughs> Um, so she has her baby, and she has a, a history of pulmonary embolisms. She's had pulmonary embolisms before. Um, I believe it's like a blood clot in your lungs. Okay. And it can, they can kill you if you don't catch them, right? So she has the birth, you know, goes pretty well. And she's recovering, and everything's, you know, happy. And she starts to not feel well. And she calls the doctor in and says, I think I have a pulmonary embolism. She says, you know, I've had them in the past. This is what it's felt like. And they, they don't listen to her. And she's at the point where, you know, she's practically yelling, like, I need, I know I need this test. Please do it. You know, I'm fe- I know what this feels like. And she has to repeat herself over and over and over. And they finally do the test, and she has one. And they treat it, right? But if they hadn't listened to her in the end, she probably would have died. And I think about this from, you know, if we look at these statistics, if women aren't being listened to, like, that's definitely contributing to these maternal mortality rates. So regardless, like, you know, you asked the question about, you know, does uh, socioeconomic class matter? Yeah, Not really. Mm. Well, when I hear the story of Serena Williams, I understand why one would extrapolate it to race or to her being a woman, but it's very easy to generalize, no? Even though we have statistics. Like, what? what about that story made you think, like, yeah, they're probably there's probably some bias going on on the doctor's part. Mm-hmm. What about that sort of signaled that? Like, why not just like bad doctor or, you know, common medical suspicion of the patient's own claims? Right. So this is just, you know, one example. But when you know what the statistics say, you know, this could clearly be. Could it be a bad doctor? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that. Serena Williams just chose a random yeah. OBGYN, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? So <laughs> I I don't think that I don't think that's the case. I think that we're trained to listen to certain types of people more than others. Like why when we look at, you know, high level executives in corporate America, why are they typically taller than the general population yeah i've heard some bad you stories know? my uh, my friend wanted to start a business and his parents don't like it so they said hey millen most ceos are six two or above and he's not six two or above 
and that was like whoa <laughs> that sucks <laughs> that's really rude well yeah so there's 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 something going on where people are in places because of the way they look mm-hmm. yeah and and so we've you know as a society we've used we've chosen to put people in those places because of the way they look or the way they sound or the way they act right like Think of our first impressions of people. Like, what do they come from? Um, there's another great book um, called Whistling Vivaldi. And it's written by the former president of Columbia, whose name escapes me right now. But he's a, he is a black man. And he talks about cognitive bias in this book. And um, the title is awesome because... He noticed, like, walking down the streets of New York City as a black man that people would cross the streets when they were co- when he was coming, like, if there weren't a lot of people around. And so he started whistling Vivaldi while he walked, mm-hmm. and he noticed that people stopped crossing the streets. And again, it's just an anecdote, and he yeah. goes into, like, the research and the cognitive science behind this. But, but what is it about, like... <laughs> Our first reactions to people, like what it, w- these cues that we, you know, unconsciously pick up and use to make judgments about them. Like how do we co- how do we become aware of them such that we stop making these assumptions? Yeah, it's it's odd because sometimes like these sort of assumptions aren't going away. We're human. This is how we make estimations of people and keep ourselves safe to some extent. And occasionally it's useful. In the case of a black patient, like statistically, it is sort of more likely they'll have malaria. It doesn't, it's not, you know, mm. malaria equals black. Or, or not no. malaria, but sickle cell. Oh, sorry, 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 yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, sickle cell, sickle cell. So in that case, the distinction is somewhat useful. Mm-hmm. But what's actually the most useful is, are you from a region of the world that had uh, malarial presence? Right. But then we get into this conversation, it's okay, it's like, do away with race, focus on the most nuanced condition, the most accurate thing possible. And then we get into colorblindness, right? So like, is what we should be doing looking at the most specific conditions or... You know, is race here to stay? What's wrong with color blindness? Um, so, for something like a genetic condition, like sickle cell anemia, I mean, I all you need to do is talk to a patient and get their family history, and you'll know that there was sickle cell in their family, right? <laughs> right, right you don't right. even have to know their ancestry. Uh, but we have genetic tests, right? We can do a genetic test. Um, there's a controversy going on right now in the United States about whole genome sequencing of infants. So we do we've we've done um, for years uh, newborn screening, right? And that started out with two or three tests for phenylketonuria was the first one. We don't have to get into the details of that, but okay. um, the th- race be- race is irrelevant for something like a monogenic disease like sickle cell. Right? Okay. It doesn't match on to race. I got you. Yeah, okay? yeah. Um, but if we know that someone is experiencing discrimination on a daily basis, that is important. To, that is important. Like it has important healthcare implications. Um, I think there, there was a study done on black college students, males, and uh, 
they were in this study exposed to like had an interaction with someone who was making racist comments and the control group was someone an interaction where they weren't and they uh, monitored blood pressure throughout. Right. And clearly the one that was hearing the, the discriminatory racist comments had higher blood pressure. Right. So we still live in uh, a, a racist society. There's systemic racism that exists that affects the way that we experience the world. Some of us have privilege because of that racism and some of us don't, right? So I think that if we had colorblindness, we can't fix that stuff. Um, And Sally Haslinger is Mm. another uh, philosopher at MIT and she talks about this a lot. Like that um, she doesn't talk about how to define race, but she's she talks about the need for it in order to um, work toward racial justice and social justice in general. Yeah, is colorblindness an ideal? I think so. I think so. If we got to the point where you know we didn't have racism, that we didn't have systemic racism, that we'd broken all of that down, then yeah. Yeah. Then we meet people as as they are, not judge them because of, you know, phenotypic characteristics that don't say anything about the person that they are. So you just mentioned systemic racism, and that is often associated with the notion of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So can you explain what exactly that is because I've been in your class and I still don't understand and both sides like to weaponize that term. Yeah, it's become a political like talking point, right? Oh, yeah. We can't do critical race theory because it makes people white people feel bad. <laughs> um, okay, so my understanding of critical race theory, it, which is really, okay, I, gotta, I have to like digress a little bit here. Um, when people started talking about critical race theory, which has actually been around for quite some time, I'm like, how, what, I don't know what this is. What is this? And then I realized I've been doing critical race theory for years <laughs> and didn't know it. Um, my understanding of critical race theory is that when we teach our whole history, not just like whitewashed versions of U.S. history, that we can start to understand why we have uh, racial disparity in society. So if we um, teach children not just, you know, about the Civil War and, you know, slavery was abolished, so all is good, right? If we teach them about things like redlining and that... um, Black Americans weren't allowed to vote, that they weren't allowed to own property, and that, you know, sharecropping wasn't great, right? (laughs) Um, When we teach people about these things, then they can understand why um, mass incarceration, like the reasons behind mass incarceration, that we don't just look at, oh my gosh, you know, why are so many black people incarcerated? Well, when we look back at the political policies and the way drugs were weaponized against black people and the way um, generational wealth gets passed down, like all of these things um, 
we need to understand them in order, like this history, we need to understand to know why we're, we're where we are right now. And maybe that helps us not repeat it. And maybe it helps us dismantle um, the system so that we can get rid of, you know, the things that sustain inequity in terms of race. Yeah. A lot of the concern coming from the right is their children are being brainwashed or something like that. So A, is that a valid concern? And B, how do we accommodate that concern when it's like there is sort of a tone to what's being provided and that like you want them to understand that this inequity exists. But the resistance is like, I don't want this information forced upon me, but I don't disagree that I need it. So what's going on here? That's a hard question for me because I want to just say that's ridiculous. (laughs) Okay, but but let's I'll try and be a little more (laughs) unbiased. Okay, so um, learning about history shouldn't be seen as like a weapon. Um, And. The other thing is, you know, we're not teaching kindergartners about like redlining. Yeah. Right. There, we don't we don't talk to them about you know the way indigenous people were uh, pillaged and forced to live on reservation. We don't talk about that in those terms at that age. So they're like educate like you don't learn about sex education until you're a little older, right? In school, so. There are age-appropriate ways to start talking about the the whole history of this country and not just the versions that have been chosen by, you know, certain, like, wealthy, typically white groups to put in history books, right? Who's writing our history? Because all of our voices haven't been heard here. Yeah. And you can see that in you, – you can see that in terms of sex and gender – um, especially in the history of science, right, that we really haven't talked about a lot of women that have been pivotal in discoveries because they weren't allowed to write. They weren't allowed to publish, right? Yeah. So we need to understand that to see why gender inequity exists in science, for example. And, I mean, that's another – there are like five different ways I want to take this answer right now. But, <laughs> I mean, if you think about the – what like – if you look at something like physics and the the um, gender disparity that exists in physics, for example, we still have people saying things like women can't do science and math. Like Lawrence Summers at Harvard said it like 10 or 15 years ago, right? And you look at the tenure rates of women at Harvard during his presidency and they're very low. So – like all of those things, like we need to th- to understand the way they affect decision makers and how they, you know, they play out in statistics because people need to know that it's just not a folk tale. Like, oh, you know, um, there's not a lot of women in science because they can't do science. Like that implicit bias that exists. Um, we need to understand why that dis- why those disparities exist. Yeah, let me ask you this. So I've been in classes where you're given this sort of information on who were the first female psychologists. You know, we're talking about this set of guys like Freud and everything, but we always talk about the men. So they intentionally give you a couple of women. Mm -hmm. And in the past, it's felt a little forced. It doesn't feel like 
it's the most relevant thing they could be saying right now. So is there a balance we need to be striking? Like we're bringing up men and women at the right time, or do we need to force the information to some extent? Because, hey, like, you know, if you're going to look at science historically, you're going to be talking about men mostly. Well, uh, let me give you an example. Um, And I don't know if this is, you know, how pervasive this is, but I think um, we don't even know all the examples of women in science. So, yeah, I think sometimes it is forced because we haven't been taught those examples. And I'll give you an example of this. (laughs) Um, So think about the way, well, the way that I was taught about the discovery of the DNA double helix. Watson and Crick, right? Watson and Crick discovered the double helix. Well, most students that I have now know that Rosalind Franklin was a key part of that discovery. She took the crystallography, x-ray crystallography picture that like triggered their model building to represent a double helix, right? Yeah. Um, That wasn't in my biology textbooks. And through, you know, it's, you know, it's funny is that it's usually reporters, journalists that discover that go through the archives that figure out that, the entire history wasn't told. And this is happening, you know, I teach uh, bioethics and we talk about human subjects research. And every year new things are discovered about old um, experiments that were maybe run by the government or, you know, hidden because they they were done, you know, with <laughs> done maliciously and targeted certain groups of people or didn't treat people properly, right? So... I think that, yeah, it can be forced, um, but I think that we haven't been taught our whole his- our, our entire history. Yeah, and it does feel like we're trying to be increasingly conscious. And uh, we do things like DEI, DEI training to try and educate people in this way, but we alluded this to this a little bit earlier. These sort of trainings don't work. So... Do you have any concerns about how sort of this, how equity is being monetized in a sense? And if that's not working, what do you, how do we do this right? Um, hmm. So, yeah, I have a problem. This has become a huge industry now, right? And w- I want to see the evidence that it's working, Like, why are we putting all this money into trainings that, you know, we really don't have the cognitive research to show that it's working? Um, There are one thing that we've embraced a little bit at RPI, and we've had a lot of faculty go through training is uh, what's called intergroup dialogue, IGD. And it's not necessarily, you know, it's about Uh, integrating social justice into our discussions, integrating um, identity into our discussions, recognizing that, you know, we all have different lived experiences. And that means we see the world in different ways. 
and the way, you know, I experience the world and act affects the way you experience the world and act. And that we need to be open to having dialogue, not debate, but actually dialogue where we practice listening to one another and not just listening to respond, but understanding that, you know, if I'm just sitting here waiting to talk, that I'm not listening to you, right? So having these difficult conversations in meaningful ways and not just like going into a room and, hey, you know, this is how you should think about the world, but actually taking the time to develop trust in a group and being able to have like conversations with people about their experience as a racialized person, about their experience as a white man, as a black woman, as um, uh, as a as a queer person, you know, like how these different identities affect us all. And I really think that if we start listening to people to learn rather than to respond or cramming stuff down people's throats when they're not in a position to, you know, receive it, that, yeah, that's the best way to do this work. And I mean, I think like our class on race, philosophy of race, was a really good example of listening and um learning about other people and how they experience the world. But it didn't start like on day one, we we didn't have that community feel, right? You have to take the time to build that. And I think it can happen in classrooms. I think it can happen in workplaces um, where, you know, you create these spaces, um, not safe spaces, but brave spaces where we're willing to have these kinds of conversations and willing to say uncomfortable things and um, not feel like we're going to be attacked for them, but like to have meaningful conversations, to use like when you think about how we speak and, you know, I have these conversations with people, not not students, but like when you're having conversations just out in the wild and, you know, you talk about those people, oh, those people who are against critical race theory, Right. And it's really easy to talk about people in those ways um, when, like, I always ask, well, who's they, right? Who's the they we're talking about? And to own your own statements when you're having these discussions, like, I think my experience has been, right, rather than, well, you know, uh, masquerading my thoughts as, well, a lot of people think that. Right. Like taking ownership for the words that are coming out of your mouth. Um, so IGD, intergroup dialogue, I'm, and, and there's a much broad, like much more in-depth definition of it. But I think like paying attention to the way we have these conversations is really important. Yeah. So instead of ramming certain ideas down people's throats, we just need to talk to each other and demonstrate that trust is available. There's this quote that it's hard to hate, to hate from up close. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, Absolutely. and that's how we achieve this to some extent. Yeah. Uh, Susan, thank you for coming on. Is there any work that you've got coming up that you'd want people to know about? Anything that you're doing or any ideas that you want people to know about? Yeah, I have, um, I'm working on a paper right now about race in medicine and looking at how we can use it responsibly. Um, so 
it's been a work in progress for a few months now, but um, I think in the spring uh, I'll send it out to see if uh, I can get it published, probably looking at uh, the Journal of Bi- American Journal of Bioethics for it, but okay. fingers crossed that comes out okay. And then that probably has a paywall, unfortunately. Mm, or no? No, it shouldn't. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I don't, yeah, I guess. Yeah, Once hopefully it's published, not. We'll see. Great. Well, thank yeah. you for coming on. 